Okay. Uh, the first one here we've got with, um, that's a reasonable question. Anyway, how do you evangelize people in the workplace which do not allow for confrontational issues such as religion? How, how would you go about evangelizing in a situation like that? Don't rush in. Go first. Yeah. Well, you know, he's, he's older and wiser than me, so maybe he should start. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. You've got grandkids. Okay. <laughs> so what was the last part of that question again, Jeff? How do you evangelize people in the workplace which, do not, which does not allow confrontational issues such as religion? Right. I can, I, can, I can feel it coming. <laughs> okay. Uh, I think you, you look for a way to uh, get together outside of the workplace as well, uh, form that relationship through the workplace, invite them over to your home for a meal or, or find some area of common interest that you can share in together. Uh, like my, my, my son is playing squash with a colleague of his in the police department and build a relationship that way, and then outside of work hours have that opportunity to talk to them. Mm. Uh, what, what I wanted to say is I, I think a lot of people, well, let me put it this way. I think we're paid to work, not to evangelize. So I don't think it's really ethical necessarily to use work time to evangelize or try and talk to someone. So if an opportunity comes up during work time, it might be appropriate to say to that person, look, you know, during the break or during lunch, let's go talk. But I think we're paid to work and we need to be exemplary people in the workplace and work hard. Okay? Now we need to have a Christian character as we work and all that. So that would be the first thing. Uh, second thing, me, often what, when, when people are doing well, they're not really open to the gospel, but everyone in the workplace sometimes has a really bad day. And sometimes they'll come to the workplace and they'll start, you know, pouring their hearts out, really frustrated about this or that. And that might be an opportunity at that point to come and show compassion to someone and to be able to then, you know, say, well, you know, when I'm in this kind of situation, this is what I do. And I go to the Lord or I read a psalm or whatever, you know. So I think there are opportunities. You've just got to be praying about your work people, your work colleagues. And the more you pray about them, when an opportunity comes up, you might just see that trigger and a chance to be able to share with them. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because um, I have heard um, that, you know, some people hold that even their workplace, their primary role in the workplace is to be an evangelist. I don't think that's quite true. That's not right. And, um, yeah, you're paid to work, so you're first role is there is to basically make money for your employer okay and as a bonus you get paid for yourself but then as opportunities come up yeah present the gospel but um, don't think your workplace is is your primary uh, area and your first responsibility is is evangelism you've got to get that right work ethic uh, in place first Okay, here's a, here's a one. Uh, I guess this has been triggered. Uh, John, you may not be aware of this, but we've got a, an election coming up in our country, and the question is obviously to do with that. And the question is, to what extent should theology inform our politics? Should it play any role in helping us determine who we should vote for? Good question. Theology. Well, it, it appears that theology doesn't have much effect on our politicians. 
<laughs> looking at the choices, but um, I, I think theology should play a role in who we decide to vote for. Um, but we, we also have to be careful not to cross the line into thinking that politics can be the salvation in our world. Uh, our responsibility is a noble one, that is to represent Jesus Christ and to share the gospel. And we're not going to bring about utopia uh, through the political processes of the country of Australia. Ne- nevertheless, we pray for and we, we vote with wisdom uh, for uh, leaders who will lead with an accountability to God and make the right decisions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really, we have elections in America kind of a two, and we have, uh, as you probably know more about our elections than we know about yours, that's the way it is in France at least, so we have Trump and Clinton right now. So Christians are going, wow, you know, what, what do I do? How do I vote? So I've heard everything, you know. Uh, some people say oh, they're going to vote for Trump for these reasons. Others say, well, I'm all, I'll almost vote for Clinton for these reasons. Some people say I'm going to vote for a third person. You know what? Frankly, I don't know. I mean, when you look at the people, you know, we're, we're not we're voting for the best of the bad of the bad options in a way. Right. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes it's really, really complicated. So I always fall back on one verse. It's a wonderful verse. Daniel 417, which says that God raises up the most vile of men. And he was talking about Nebuchadnezzar there, saying that somehow in God's providence and sovereignty, he will even raise up a horrible leader for his purposes. I mean, God used Babylon, right, and the Assyrians to judge Israel. So sometimes he even used bad people to, to, to accomplish his plan. So in, in God's providence... God sometimes raises up the worst people. That doesn't mean we should vote for the worst people. We try and vote for the best. But you know what? If the worst get into place, well, ultimately, God, God is in control of all that. So we need to bless God and pray for our leaders. Excellent answer. Excellent answer. Uh, just another question on evangelism here. Um, uh, I think this kind of came up in our theology class just recently. Uh, or something to this effect. And the question is, how do you evangelize to someone who does not believe the Bible to be God's word? I guess the question is, where do you start? Is, is, is this a necessity uh, to have uh, before you can evangelize? Well, you know, is, it a, is Isaiah 55 that says, God's word will not return to me void. So there's a sense in which, I, I was actually thinking about this uh, the other day. If you go to Genesis 1 1. Let's just go to it, okay? Just for fun. Okay? It's really hard to find Genesis 1 1 when you've got all these forwards and stuff in your Bible. But anyway, <laughs> here we are. Okay, now we know it by heart, but I just want to read it. Okay, so it says this In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's interesting, the Bible does not start by trying to prove the existence of God. It starts by just saying, God exists. Whether you like it or not, it's true. So, in evangelism, especially in France, in France, where so many people don't believe in God, they don't believe in the Bible, they don't believe in Jesus, they don't believe in anything, I don't really care. So what I've done in evangelism, I'll say this, I'll say, hey, can I share a verse with you? Oh, I don't believe in the Bible. I'll say this, that's fine. 
I'm not asking you to believe in the Bible. I'm asking you to listen to one verse. It's very different. So they're saying, okay, well, listen to a verse. Then you know what? They will, they usually don't ask or bring up the fact that they don't believe in the Bible anymore. Once they get intrigued by the verse, then they're tracking with you. So I don't think it's necessary to try and prove the Bible. Just use it. Mm-hmm. That's a good answer. I agree with that. Uh, prayer. You know, we, we, we have to pray for the Lord to prepare the heart and, and for the Lord to draw them uh, to salvation. When we share the gospel, it always has an effect. Uh, and we're sharing the word of God uh, when we're sharing the gospel. It either has the effect of an invitation and the Lord draws them to salvation or it has the effect of an indictment. Um, it always has an effect. Yeah, I'm just thinking that, you know, this is, there's a whole lot of time and effort and um, I'm not denigrating all this effort and time that's spent into trying to prove that the Bible is true, especially in evangelism and and so forth. And um, I think, what was your message, John? One of the things, we have to get to the point and in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That is an excellent point. And... Um, yeah, it's really up to them whether to believe the Bible or not. It's acceptance or rejection. Now, can I add one thing? If you do get a discussion of trying to prove the Bible, I think there's one thing that works every time. It's really simple. It's clear. It's powerful. How can you prove to someone in like three minutes, okay, that the Bible is true? Here it is. One word. Prophecy. I mean, when you start wrapping up the prophecies and showing people, like, for example, I did this. When we were in Israel, we were doing a tour in Israel, and our guide was a French Jew, and he just totally unregenerate, uninterested in Christianity. So I said to him, I said, hey, uh, can I talk to you? I want to show you something. He goes, yeah. I said, I'd like to play a game with you. He said, okay. I said, I'm going to read some verses, and you tell me who you think the verses are talking about and where in the Bible it is. He goes, okay. So I read Isaiah 53. He goes, oh, that's all about Jesus. That's in the New Testament. I said, no. Then I told, pulled the Bible, opened it, and I said, look, Isaiah 53. The guy was floored. He was completely floored that the Old Testament was talking so clearly about the Messiah. So I think that is probably the quickest and easiest way to prove to someone that the Bible is true, showing them how prophecy has fulfilled itself. Mm. Yes, because in regard to that question, is, um, I think there's a bit of a, a wrong uh, direction to take is trying to get on equal ground or for the Christian or for the one who's doing the evangelizing to try and equate themselves, to try and start on the same ground. That will never happen because you're a child of God and you've got uh, the Spirit of God and so there will never be equal ground, as it were, where you can start off somewhere that's completely autonomous. You have a presupposition, like in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And so don't belittle that, and, um, but in grace, just uh, bring them the gospel. Here's a question uh, about missions. What is the greatest challenge for missions and missionaries today that we can we can and should be praying for. Well, there are a lot of challenges. Um, every year, our missionaries have to fill in an annual report. And um, one of the questions is, uh, what, what, what was the difficulty you experienced in this last year? And one missionary wrote, 
my sin hurt others and other sins hurt me. Missionaries are 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 people and and it's a, a daily struggle, um, spiritual warfare. And one of the quickest ways for us to become defeated is to become divided or to become discouraged. I mean, a division isn't just necessarily missionaries fighting with one another, um, but even within ourselves. And so I, I think we, we need to, uh, to pray for missionaries, same as we would for ourselves, that we might walk in, in grace and, and in wisdom and would be growing in our walk with the Lord. Yeah, that's so true. I mean, really, just, you know, missionaries are just normal people with normal struggles, and they need to be prayed for. I think also maybe, it depends, I think maybe prayers change depending on the, what, the, the, um, the time in their lives of the missionary. When a first missionary goes to the field, you know, there's the honeymoon period, and then crash. The reality hits, language learning, cultural problems. It's just really, really complicated, at least in a country where they have to learn language. And then, uh, then it gets to, well, there's no fruit in my ministry. You know, what am I doing? Why have I, have I really been called? And all these questions come up. Then they go on furlough and they're really excited. They're, they're jealous maybe at some people because, you know, the, the people in their own country have continued growing all their stuff and they're sacrificing and so they're maybe feeling a little left out. Then their kids grow up and then the next phase is their kids are older kids and they're beginning to be maybe influenced by the culture. Are they really walking with the Lord? All these questions come up. So there's different phases. And so that's why it's important to be in constant contact with your missionaries and be praying for them because they're, they're, there's, and then sometimes they come home. They're really in a high point. Oh, everything's going great. Sometimes they come home and they're in the pits, aren't they? And they could be really, really depressed, really depressed. And so you got to not maybe judge them too quickly. Thanks for that. Um, Here's a very practical question, and it's probably obviously directed to you, John. Um, what is the response of Geneva citizens to the gospel, and how do you present the gospel to this postmodern city? Obviously, looking for ways and methods, and um, yeah. Well, the way I present the gospel is usually this way. It's a catchy phrase I learned once. It says this: one verse, five minutes, and a little bit of courage. Actually. <laughs> It's no different, you know. I mean, sometimes you'll have 20 minutes. I've actually, I've got three methods I use to share the gospel. It's the John 3.16 quick method. Then it's the four laws, like a little track method, which might take 10, 15 minutes. Then I've got evangelism explosion, which is I need like 45 minutes, and I really go right for the jugular on that one. So you just sort of have to be ready and seize the opportunity and the time you have. So I'd say that the big, the big lesson for me in Geneva, I don't know what it's like here in Asia, you know Asia better, over there is just being ready, seizing the opportunity. But Geneva is like any other city. It may be very wealthy, very international, but sinners are sinners. Whether they're you know, down and outers or up and outers, they're outers, and they need Christ. So that really is the, the answer. The second, what is the effect? Well, Geneva used to have a reformation, now it's post-Reformation. I mean, there's just almost zero interest in the gospel. It's just like France. So it's very, very post-modern, post-Christian, post-Reformation, post-everything. I don't know what it's like in Asia. Oh, that was for Geneva, wasn't it? Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm just thinking, um, probably back many years, even when I was uh, younger, the, there was a uh, there was a lot of place given to churches putting on a huge amount of programs, and uh, there were crusades and all that sort of thing. Um, we don't see much of that around nowadays, um, but it seems to be, you know, one at a time and uh, one verse and five minutes, a little bit of courage. That seems to be. Now, if I could add this, we do. If, if we have time, I can show a few pictures of our ministry in Geneva. One of the things that, that we created by pure grace of God is these massive Christmas concerts. So it's exactly what you're talking about. The Lord gave us some very talented musicians. We put this huge Christmas concert. It's great. It's very gospel-centered, gospel-proclaiming. Now, after nine years of these concerts, how many people have come to Christ? Are you ready? Zero that we know of. So it's always the same thing. You know, you, you put a massive amount of effort, but ultimately the Lord has to lead people to himself. Yeah, I think we, we need to recognize that it's not just sowing seed, but there also has to be a tilling of the soil that happens even before that. And so it's all a process with evangelism and discipleship. And in our postmodern world, uh, we can't assume that people have even a basic knowledge of the Scripture anymore. And so um, we're finding, not just in Asia, but here in Australia as well, um, sometimes it's necessary to use a chronological method so that people can understand who God is and, and can, can comprehend the seriousness of sin in the sight of a holy God and, and, and see how the, the meta-narrative of the scripture fits together and focuses on Jesus. Yeah, thank you, guys. Here's another one. Um, it's probably, I think it's probably been answered, but we'll, we'll address it anyway. Uh, should I risk offending an unbeliever by telling them of the exclusivity of Christ during our first chat, or do I wait for another time after gaining their trust? I think this, the, the background to this question is that there has been quite a... Um, I've been to evangelism classes and read many evangelism books and uh, there have been so-called evangelists who uh, really promote you've got to win a person's trust and there's, this hot, there's a long process and that's the way, you know, and so you have all these methods that sort of uh, bridge building, etc., 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 and then you can launch in. I think this probably would be at the back of this question, but, um, yeah... Should I tell them straight off, uh, or should I wait until I earn their trust? Well, I don't think there's an answer to that. I mean, I was the result of a guy taking five minutes, literally, and leading me to Christ on the street. Uh, other people are neighbors. I mean, we've been living for 20 years. Some of our neighbors we've been working on for 20 years, you know. So it's, it's really, you know, it's, 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 I don't think there's a real answer to that. It's just, you just, you know, you talked about your neighbor, what's his name? Manier. Yeah, Manier, that's a cool story, you know. So you're you're building trust, you've shared Christ, sometimes he's with you, sometimes he's not. I mean that's that's the way we all are, right? With our neighbors it's complicated, with our colleagues it's complicated and it's a lot easier to go on the street and just preach Christ anonymously than being with your own neighbors and family and, and friends. But there, there's no easy answer to that. There really isn't. Yeah, I agree. It 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 depends on the context. You know, when you're only gonna have a moment with someone then, yeah, go straight forward. But if you've got a relationship, uh, then you just have to depend on the Lord to direct you and, and, and weigh up when is the right time to bring that up. You will need to bring it up at some stage, um, but pray for that right opportunity. Yeah, I think that's really important. You know, like um, 
there's a an old cliche that says um, actions speak louder than words, but it's really not true when it comes to the gospel. We do need words, and uh, we do need to come to the point. And um, there's not one method. There's many methods, but as long as we point them to Christ, as long as we point them to the Saviour, I think that's, that's the main thing. It is the main thing. Okay, given your acceptance of the Protestant work ethic, six days shalt thou labour, can a Christian be an entertainer or a professional sportsman or merely play sport for relaxation and enjoyment? Do everything for the glory of God. No, okay. Especially not rugby. Repent. That was the only one Jesus <laughs> forbid. <laughs> Rugby is a sport played in heaven, though, <laughs> <laughs> as Jeff would know. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so you want to take it from there since you're really into rugby? I hit sensitive, uh, sensitive uh, domain here. No, I mean, my, my answer is I don't think there's any area unless it's immoral. You know, if you say, oh, can I be a prostitute to the glory of God? I mean, that's ridiculous, right? So there are certain, so sports, is sports morally wrong? That's the question we need to ask ourselves. No, sports is not morally wrong. There may be gambling behind sport. That is perhaps morally wrong. But sports in and of itself. Now, that's, I mean, I don't, I've never thought about this before. You know, is boxing morally wrong? Or is, uh, you know, those uh, kickboxing, you know, when they really almost kill each other, is that morally wrong? That gets really complicated, I don't know. But most sports are just games, right? And so is it wrong to be a sportsman to the glory of God? I don't think so. Is it wrong to be an entertainer? I don't think it's morally wrong to do that. I think the arts are very much to the glory of God. Um, I think sometimes in some of our Christian circles, we become very legalistic and we preach so much to people. Boy, you know, watch out. You've got to be, you know, you've got to protect yourself from the evils of the world that we've almost... Uh, what, uh, you know, hibernated ourselves from the outside world, fearing of being contaminated. It's interesting. I, I don't want to take too much time here, but 13 years ago, I was contacted by phone by a guy who said, do you want to be the chaplain of a hockey team in Geneva? And I thought it was a joke. He said, no, this is not a joke. A Christian man has just bought all these teams and he's bought Geneva. And he, we found you and we think you should be the chaplain. So I became a chaplain. A man in my church came up to him and he says, Hockey is where Satan works, <laughs> implying that I was making a huge mistake becoming a chaplain of the hockey team. And I said to him, I'm sorry, hockey players and all those people over there need Christ. If I'm not there, how are they going to hear about Christ? So what is the answer? Is that where Satan is and we should not be there or should we indeed be there to preach the gospel? That's the question. I think it also goes to what? You were talking about John in, in one of your messages that that false dichotomy between sacred and, and secular. Uh, that, uh, recreation, physical exercise does profit some, according to the scripture. And, and God has created us um, with a need for rest, uh, for recreation, and, and to um, classify those as, as things that um, our lesser slips into that dichotomy. You know, also, God has given us the senses. I mean, think about this. Why did God give us t- taste buds? 
so that we can enjoy really good food. I mean, you know, I mean, the other day, or actually earlier on today, uh, we walked down over here and they had this donut with this Australian cream. There was about that much cream on it. It was incredible, man. And I enjoyed, I enjoyed because God gave me taste buds, which means I'm allowed to enjoy good food, right? He gives us ears so we can listen to beautiful music. He gives us a sense of smell so we can enjoy like the, the, the fragrance of a petal and flowers. Uh, he's given us a sense of feeling, etc., so we can touch a koala and get really excited about it. But seriously, I mean, God has given us senses so that we can enjoy this world and this creation. I forgot the question. What was the question? Carry on. <laughs> hey, we're, we're enjoying it. Carry on. Well, yeah, but I don't know what I was answering. That's yeah, the problem. Yeah. What was I answering? Yeah. Anyway, see, I mean, yeah, so God allows us to enjoy life, and, and leisure is part of that. He's given us uh, a, 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 an ability to enjoy nice things in life. Well, that was what I was trying to say. Yeah. I, I think, too, the, the fact that of becoming an entertainer or a professional sportsman, uh, one must understand, uh, as in any vocation that we have the liberty to choose, there will be different challenges in that for the Christian than there would be if he was a pastor or a, uh, and what was the word you used before? A, a latrin digger. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, latrin digger. Um, there will be different challenges. And um, just like the same if a Christian becomes a politician, there's going to be challenges there that a lot of people wouldn't. And so, yeah, it's we just got to just go through that and, uh, and um, make sure that whatever we do is God-honoring and to the glory of God. Okay, how do I know God's will? That's the question. That's a huge one. Um, Very simple answer to that. I know you'll give it. So. Well, read and obey the Bible is, is where it, it has to start. And I, I, I think uh, some, some people are, are waiting for something mystical to happen. But uh, we, we need to fundamentally be reading and obeying the Scripture. Then there are some things that the Scripture doesn't uh, specifically address. Uh, with, with those things, depending on the Lord in prayer, going to uh, those who have authority over us, if we're still in the home, our parents, uh, our pastor, um, godly people um, that can help advise us, and then just trust in the Lord that he has honored his word and has made our path straight as we make the decision. And I would I totally, 100% agree with that. And uh, I would put a verse to that. Psalm 37.4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And so, if you're delighting yourself in the Lord, you are allowed to start following the desires of your heart, but prudently. Now, the best sermon I've ever heard on this is by John MacArthur. It's called Found God's Will. It is revolutionary. I highly recommend you finding it. It's on his website, on the, uh, the Grace to You website. It's called Found God's Will. He gives six principles. It will blow you away. It's the most freeing sermon I've ever heard on God's will. It actually changed my life. And it's a sermon I give now in French, giving credit, because it's so useful. So I can highly recommend you listening to that one if you don't know, if you never heard. Or there's also a book on it, too, called Found God's Will. Thanks, guys. Okay, this is another question on, on evangelism, and um, the questioner would love to hear your thoughts about evangelizing non-Christian family members. 
I guess that can have its challenges. And uh, so, yeah, any any fresh insight on evangelizing non-Christian family members? That's a very difficult thing. And if any of you figure it out, I'd like to hear your answers on it. Because uh, it, it is, it's very delicate, isn't it? Um, because uh, the family members can so quickly become offended when we bring up this particular topic. Uh, nevertheless, they are close to us. We, we love them and we want so desperately for them to be saved. And so, uh, of course, prayer as you do and, and looking and praying for an opportunity when there can be uh, one of those, those moments of, of honesty when you can talk about uh, those, those uh, personal things. I was thinking of my own dad. I mean, I tried for years to bring him to Christ, and it got so tense that I concluded that the best thing I could do was to never bring the gospel up again to my dad. Now, I don't know if that's very spiritual or not, but that kept peace in the home. Then I thought to myself, you know what? He knows other people that are Christians that will be able to lead him to Christ. Maybe it's not going to come from me. I was talking to my wife earlier. We were, talk- we were talking about this just earlier. And... Um, talking about family members, and we concluded, you know, family members sometimes are very resistant to us, but they have other people in their lives. So, you know, sometimes we feel like it all depends on us. It doesn't. It depends on God who can deploy a messenger if the recipient is ready. Yeah, we had um, some personal uh, experience of that many years ago. My wife and I, we we were in Israel, and... um, our son, Carl, you'll, or most of you will know, a lot of you will know here, he really run off the rails. He was a bit like John here in his early days, uh, except he didn't have long hair. Um, <laughs> but he, he made a profession, and we were absolutely distraught to see the direction he was going. Here we are, we're halfway around the world. And we kind of felt, wow, we've made a mistake here. We should have stayed home. We were starting to think that he relies on us. But God raised up someone else who spoke to him and counseled him, and it was through that man uh, that Carl was restored to the Lord and repented of his sin, and, and you know, Carl, where he is today. So, yeah, don't think it just relies on you just because they are an immediate member of the family. Mind you, as parents, if you want to know about the will of the Lord, the will of the Lord for you as parents, your first responsibility for evangelizing is your children. You have to bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. So don't try and get out of that. Don't just leave them to the Sunday school teachers, okay? And uh, so we'll leave that one there. Um, should every church, I'd say a resounding yes, should every church send or support a missionary? We could say yes for that, couldn't we? Well, I had a revolutionary idea recently. I, I, I tried to do the math, but I didn't know how to do it. I thought to myself, you know, a lot of people, not, several people have said to us over the years, because we're supported missionaries, and so that means people donate to our ministry account, and several people said to us over the years, we would like to support you for life. Now, when someone says that to you, that really affects you. I mean, you're going, you're, you're kidding. You're going to support me for life. And I thought to myself, imagine if every Christian in the world picked one missionary and decided to support that missionary for life. It doesn't have to be a lot. Let's say 20 bucks or 10 bucks or whatever. You know, one missionary, your favorite, for life. If every Christian in every church did that, I don't think we would have any 
problems supporting the missionary workforce around the world. What do you think? Does that sound well, does that sound doable? It, it certainly does sound doable. Yeah. Sounds kind of cool, doesn't it? It does. Sounds great. <laughs> so what we did as a result, when people were saying that to us, we picked a missionary in a Muslim world, and we support him for life. So we decided we would do that as an exercise, and it's been actually very, very exciting. We've been supporting him for, what, 30 years now we've been supporting him? It's been very, very neat. So I don't know if that's the right answer, but that's the answer I felt like giving. Sounds pretty cool so, to me. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Maybe we could start something. Well, why not? Yeah, yeah. why not? Okay, we've got a, uh, a kind of a long statement before we finally get to the question here, but I'll read it out anyway so that you can get the context. I think you are right to uphold the dignity of work. It is wonderful to see the impact that applying scriptural principle has had on a great number of societies as they have taken hold of this. I wonder if you would make comment, however, on how we might guard ourselves against confusing this dignity with the innate dignity of human beings being made in the image of God, i.e., what about those who, due to disability, are not able to work? I think the question is, the right end, what about those who are due to disability or unable well, to that's work? Well, exactly right. The Bible talks about helping widows and orphans, right? So, I mean, the Bible understands that not all are able to work. When Second uh, Thessalonians says, uh, he who does not uh, work, uh, who does, who, uh, how does it go? I forget it in French. He who does not want to work, neither let him eat. It's those who can work, but who are lazy. But some people clearly cannot work. First Timothy 5, even in the church, gives provision for widows. You remember widows who are 60, they've been faithful, they have no family. They are to be put on the list of the church so that they are to be supported by the church. So the Bible makes provision for those who cannot work, absolutely. And yes, I think it's right, we were also talking about this earlier, the dignity of work, hard work, making money and all that can become a problem. It could become the love of problem, uh, the love of problem, the love of money. So God could give you success. This is what Calvin was saying. And you work, you put all those principles to work. Guess what? You could become intoxicated by your work and by your riches. This is not right either. So there's a right balance here. And this is why we need to be in the Lord, content, work hard, but not confuse the dignity of work with the dignity we have in Christ and being made in the image of God. Absolutely. Yeah. And keeping the end goal in mind that we do all for the glory of God. And that is something that all of us can do, regardless of our physical abilities. Absolutely. Yeah, I was wondering how this um, uh, would go down. Um, this country, along with New Zealand, is known as the land of the long weekend. You ever hear of that, John? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is the land of the long weekend, right? Man, I feel like moving here. This is yeah, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And, and, and so you're kind of mentioning six days, and even it was all biblical, six days shall you labor and one day rest, etc. The question is, how does the Sabbath apply today? Should, I, should weekends be only one day? Yeah, we should, we should cancel all those three-day weekends. <laughs> <laughs> Are you running for political office? Yeah, right. <laughs> That'll work. work. <laughs> Do you want to take a shot at this? Yeah, how does the Sabbath apply today? Well, the Seventh-day Adventist would say it applies directly, right? Um, I think the principle, though, still does apply, that we do need some rest. And, and we need to have a 
a focus on the Lord. I, I find it disturbing when um, Sunday is, is treated like, uh, you know, a, a day you can do anything you want. Um, we're born again into a body. And this body meets on Sunday for worship and a preaching of God's word because it was on the first day of the week that our Lord rose from the dead. And so Sunday isn't just a day, oh, well, yeah, sport is is on, so we're not going to be able to make it to church. No, that needs to be a priority. And rest also has to be a priority. Um, in our world, um, you know, we're, we can be working all the time. We can always be on call, and, and many people are. Uh, we, we've got to schedule um, and be disciplined to have rest time and family time and time that is a priority for worshiping and gathering together as a body. Uh, I would also say that, um, you know, it's true we say the, the God works six days and rests on the seventh. Well, we get two days off. Right? We get Saturday and Sunday. So we've got it better than God. That's how you might reason. However, when you stop and think about it, Saturdays, most people work very hard. They just don't get paid. They do laundry. They mow the grass. They do repair on the house. They've got to go do this, got to go do errands. I mean, most people use Saturday because now many people have double income. So they're so busy. They have no time to do anything. So Saturday becomes this crazy day to do everything you have not had time to do Monday through Friday, right? Then Sunday comes around, and that technically is really our day of rest. Unfortunately, some people are so, I mean, exhausted from the weekend Saturday that they feel they need to take Sunday not even to come to church, which is sad. Because really, Sunday should be the day of the Lord. And so we should be able to come and be refreshed in the Lord on Sunday. So that's the way I look at it. And actually, that's exactly what you were saying. So, voila. Great answers. Okay. Now, this is one that will really excite you. Um, if all people were, are called to evangelize, and that's right, we're all image bearers, right? Images, uh, imaging Christ. Why have full-time evangelists? That's the question. Well, if all Christians are called to care for one another, why have full-time pastors? <laughs> I, could, I could take you to circles that would ask exactly the same question too. <laughs> John's got the text. Well, he, Ephesians 4 says that God designated some. Yes. So. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say in Ephesians 4. It says that God has given some as evangelists, some as pastor teachers. So it's interesting that um, some are truly designated as evangelists. Now, I make a big difference personally between an evangelist, which is a gifted person, Ephesians 4, and Acts 1.8, which calls all of us witnesses. God has given us the Holy Spirit to be witnesses. So every time you share your testimony, every time you say to someone, I am a born-again Christian, you've just witnessed. Every time you try and articulate the gospel, if you're really bad at it, it's okay. You're still a witness. 
evangelists seem to have this gift. I mean, they're like incredibly gifted. And usually you notice an evangelist by his fruit. An evangelist will probably lead more people to Christ than a non-evangelist, than just a witness. And so in our church, I can spot three to four people that truly have a gift of evangelism. How do I know? They're always talking about Christ and they're leading people to Christ. It's very, very exciting to see. Probably a pretty low percentage in the church. Nevertheless, they have been gifted to do that. Yeah. Mm. I just I was just reminded of a conversation I had a, a, a while back with um, a Christian who was very concerned um, that she couldn't articulate the gospel well enough to be a witness, and hence there was a, a reticence to, to do that. And uh, I tried to encourage it. I said, hey, look, no one's perfect. Even if you feel that you made a mess of witnessing or maybe saying the wrong word, uh, you're not in charge. The Lord is. Okay? But you've got to, it comes with practice. You've got to more and more and more. So, yeah, don't be discouraged with that. But um, So we need to uh, witness, but at the same time, the Lord does give the church... Uh, those who are gifted with evangelism. Yeah, it's, it's like all the other gifts. You know, I mean, there's the gift of faith. Mm-hmm. Have you ever thought about that one? Well, we're all supposed to have faith. And when we come to Christ through faith, we're supposed to live by faith. So what does it mean that someone has a gift of faith? Well, they got like a turbo of faith. And uh, one pastor says a person who has a gift of faith is probably a person who's really a prayer warrior because they're exercising their faith. Are we all supposed to give? Yes, we're all supposed to express liberality. But some have the gift of giving. So what's the difference? Well, some just like have a boosted giving. You know, they have probably more resources and they give more. And that's the way with all the gifts. We all have to exercise all those gifts. But some really are gifted in that area and therefore probably see better fruit in those areas. Okay. We're coming down to the last two questions here, uh, gentlemen. And um, I'll ask this one first. How much should a church impose its secondary preferences... On its supportive missionaries, i.e., long skirts or shirts? Must be skirts. The question is how much should a church, obviously a local church, impose its secondary preferences on its supportive missionaries? Excellent question. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure what angle to answer this from. Uh, That. I think I'll take the perspective of the missionary here. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll use an example that is different to the, the one there. Uh, some, some churches have uh, a preference with what version of the Bible they use. And that, that can be impractical uh, in a cross-cultural situation. Um, so should... Should missionaries be forced to use a particular version of the Bible? I, I, I think they shouldn't be. Uh, they, they should use what's appropriate for the cross-cultural context that they're working in. And the same would go with uh, some, some cultural matters that may be important to us in our country, but are not important in the country where the missionary is working. Yeah, we have a really good example of this. Uh, A few years ago, a very, very large church in America that invited me to come and speak a few times decided they wanted to support us financially. So we were all excited. They sent two people over and uh, they were in our town and we were talking and they were going to announce to us 
that they were going to support us. And during the breakfast, I was talking to the guy, and one of the guys said, Hey, John, how do you guys deal with the issue of wine here in France? I said, Oh, wine is a non-issue here. I mean, you know, I mean, this is the number one wine producer of the world, at least it was in those days. Australia's got good competition, by the way. And I said, you know, it's no big deal. We serve wine for communion. I mean, you know, this is just part of the culture. The guy was shocked. Absolutely shocked. We never got support from that church. They withdrew it because of the wine issue. So I thought to myself, huh, what if I as a missionary had gone to that church and said, you know what, we know that in America there is sometimes an issue with overweight. Maybe we should ban sugar. Well, we would never say that to America. We would never have them ban sugar. This is just a cultural issue. And so wine is a cultural issue. It's not a biblical issue. I mean, you can make a point, the fact that Jesus created wine. That was his first miracle. We know it was wine because the guy said, it was, why did you keep the best wine till the end? So we know that drinking wine is not an issue, but some American church had this blockage for historical reasons about wine. Is it right for them to impose on us their view of wine. I don't think they should. That has happened often in the past, and that's really messed up the missionary. Because, you know, over there, you celebrate everything with a glass of wine. No, I can't drink because my mission forbids me to, just doesn't go over. Just does not go over. Now, both of our dads were alcoholics. So that's different. If you say to someone, I don't drink because my father was an alcoholic, they'll get that. That's no problem. But because your mission imposed it, that doesn't go over well. So that's why I would say you've got to be careful imposing your own rule on that of a missionary overseas. Yeah, well, well, well said, and um, I totally agree here. Okay, here was, here's the last one. In the light of Exodus 2017, where does it... Okay, I'm just trying to read the writing here. Uh, where, where, does it, oh, where does slavery... Okay, In the light of Exodus 2017, where does slavery fit in with capitalism and the Protestant work, work ethic? Exodus 2017. I probably should know that one by heart. Can someone read it for me? Well, obviously it's got something to do with slavery. Yeah, it's, it's a Ten Commandments. I know one word, it's slavery, yeah. One, is, it? is that the one? Exodus 2017. It's the last one, isn't it? It's in the Decalogue. Exodus 2017 says, You shall not cover your neighbor's house. You shall not cover your neighbor's wife or his male servant, maybe slave in some versions, or his female servant, slave, or his ox, his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Can you repeat the question? In the light of Exodus 20, 2017, where does slavery fit in with capitalism and the Protestant work ethic? I've never thought of that question before. <laughs> I really don't know. Um, I guess the issue is, you know, what does the Bible say about slavery? The, the Old Testament seems tolerant about it. Um, there's rules about slavery. There's very specific laws about slavery. In the New Testament, Paul never tries to make slaves or doesn't try and, and, and stop slavery. He just actually tells slaves to be submissive to their, uh, to their owners. So it's just kind of interesting. Um, now, how that fits in with capitalism, man, I don't know. Do you have an idea? Maybe we need to focus on, on what the point of the verse is. The point is about coveting. And in that context, some people own servants. So that it would be possible to covet someone who has that particular possession. In our context, we, we don't have slaves. So, 
But there are plenty of other things that we can covet that people possess. True. Yeah, no, yeah, I know. I, 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 I went to India a, a few years ago with my wife, and um, and they were with Benji's, um, Linda's, or Linda's parents, and and oh man, I, I felt that I could live in India tomorrow. You know, you had these servants that come in and they sweep the floors and they clean the place and they do the cooking. Man, I would have made a great Indian. I would have loved that. People sort of <laughs> what, ask me, you know. I had the foot massage. I didn't even have to leave the room, and yeah, yeah, it was awesome. You know, the, but these were servants, and uh, I think, yeah, what, what these in the old days would be called slaves, I suppose. But they were happy; they were earning a living. And were uh, they being paid? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So they yeah. weren't really slaves. Well, they got to live. Yeah, but we call them servants. You want to use the same word? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, employees. Yeah, it's probably wrong. It's not the word slave, but so the that, slave earned his, even the biblical days. They, had, they earned their lodgings yeah. and. Yeah, it's kind of, it's generally looked after. Yeah, complicated question. But, um, but yeah, that's our Q&A. Um, our time has gone. Um, thank you, gentlemen, for answering all these questions so intelligently and Can correctly. I ask one question? Yeah. This is really weird, but I've got to prove to my church in Geneva that I'm actually working here and not just petting kangaroos. Meg, could you take a picture of us up here? I mean, I've, no, I've got to prove to them that I'm really working, okay? He's guilty. He's feeling guilty now. Yeah, no, I'm not feeling guilty, but I think they, they would like to see this. So I know it's on the video, but uh, if I could, because I sent them pictures so that Sunday morning they can see what we're doing and they can see all of you. So maybe we could just have the picture. Is that good? Okay. Oh. Okay, okay, thank you. Whew. Okay. <laughs> I'm okay. Thank you.